Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series, Questions, the Beginnings of Faith. If you died tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? Or do you suspect that the answer is not that simple? Join us for the message, If I don't feel lost, why do I need to be found? Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church of Duncanville, Texas. If you died tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? Or do you suspect that the answer to that question is not all that simple? Well, our message today is, if I don't feel lost, why do I need to be found? Our scripture reading today comes from Hosea chapter 11 and Luke chapter 15. Hosea 11 verses 1 through 11. When Israel was a child, I loved it, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led with them a course of human kindness with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks and bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me to the most high they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you an, an up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zahom? My heart recoils with me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not ex execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God, and no mortal, the Holy One, is in your midst, and I will not come to earth in, in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, who roars like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come, trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria and I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. Luke 15, verses 11 through 24. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in, des in desolate living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have, hurt, have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. 
He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, have you been saved? If you die tonight, where would you spend eternity? Now, how many of you have ever been approached by somebody on the street, or maybe you've read some sort of a religious tract that asks you these questions? So how did you respond? Did you wave them off? Did you roll your eyes? Did you listen politely? Did you actually try to engage them in conversation and dialogue? My favorite answer to that question, by the way, is to have you been saved is, yes, I was saved 2,000 years ago, which is really not the answer they're looking for. But what does it mean to be saved? Being saved is not a term that we tend to use in the United Methodist Church. It's used much more frequently in other churches and other denominations. And in those contexts, what this generally means is something like, because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus, we have been saved from the wrath of God and the fires of hell, of which we are otherwise richly deserving. And that's what it means to be saved. But the thing is that Jesus' own description of God, however, is really quite different. In Jesus' description of God, particularly here in the parable of the prodigal son, God is not this vengeful deity ready to consign us to the fires of hell for eternity. God is like a father who pines for his lost children and is ever searching the horizon for any sign that they might be on their way home. Kathy read from the 15th chapter of Luke, but that chapter actually begins with these two verses. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus then proceeds to tell them three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the lost son which we often call the parable of the prodigal son. Now, for most of us, this is a very familiar tale. The younger of two sons approaches his father and asks for his share of the estate. His father gives him what he asks for, and then the younger son goes off to a foreign country. There he foolishly squanders the money that his father has given him till there's nothing left. A famine comes upon the land, and he has to take a job feeding the pigs. The son then has a moment of clarity, and he remembers that even the servants back home in his father's house have more than enough to eat, so he decides he's going to go back to his father, admit his guilt, and ask to be treated like one of his hired hands. As the son heads back to his father's house, just as he becomes visible on the horizon, his father sees him as filled with compassion runs toward him, wraps his arms around his son and kisses him. And the son starts to recite this speech that he had prepared. But his father interrupts him to tell the servants to go get the finest robe and bring a ring and sandals for his feet and slaughter the fatted calf while you're at it. 
Let us eat and celebrate, for the son of, my, son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, of course, as most of us know, there's also an older brother who objects to all this frivolity, but we will save his story for another day. Now, there are four specific things to keep in mind as uh, we talk about the story of the prodigal son. First of all, when the younger son goes to his father and asks for his share of the estate, what he is essentially saying to his father is, I wish you were dead. Because most of us don't receive any kind of inheritance until our parents die. And to ask for your share early really means you're not dying fast enough and I'm getting impatient. Secondly, as a Jewish man, the feeding of pigs, which was, they were considered unclean animals, this would have been particularly degrading. And then to envy the food that the pigs were eating would be even more degrading still. Third thing to notice. The father doesn't just wait around for his son to come home. He sees his son at a distance, runs toward him. And in, as soon as the son makes his decision to go back, the father meets him where he is and brings him the rest of the way home. Fourth, I think it's interesting where the father cuts him off in the speech. The son gets to the part where he admits his guilt and he accepts that this makes him unworthy of being called a son, but it's that point that he's interrupted by his father. He, he's interrupted by his father before he makes that offer just to be treated as a servant. So despite his claims of unworthiness, it's obvious that his father still clearly sees him as his own beloved son. You see, in this parable, Jesus is obviously comparing the father in the story to who Jesus refers to as our heavenly father, Abba, God. And God freely gives with no conditions, even if we maybe sometimes wish God were dead. We take what we've been given, and often we make very poor decisions, thereby squandering the gifts that God has given us. And sometimes, usually after we've reached some sort of place that we later think of as rock bottom, we can then have that moment of clarity and realize that it's time to get ourselves back to God. Now notice that the father doesn't actually go out on the road looking for his son. Likewise, God allows us to make a free will decision to leave and a free will decision to return. But as soon as we decide to return, God is right there to welcome us back. Because you see, we don't have the power to make it all the way back on our own, to make it all the way back home. God meets us where we are, and we, we have to admit that we've screwed up. But yet we always find that God still considers us one of God's own precious children. And you see, this is the story of salvation, and this is what it means to be saved. We're saved both from something, and we're saved for something. We're saved from bearing the complete or the ultimate consequences of our sin, but we're saved for the opportunity to become faithful children of God. In parts of Africa, the English word salvation is translated as God took our heads out. Now, at first phrase, God takes our head out, we might giggle, 
because for us that kind of sounds like a scatological reference. But Africans mean something entirely different because during the time of the African slave trade, Africans were captured and they were put into iron shackle collars that would stay on their necks for months on end until they reached the slave market. So in salvation, God takes her heads out of the collar of slavery. And we're no longer bound by sin or oppression, but we're free to serve God. Remember what we sing at Christmas time, O Holy Night? Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Though sometimes I do feel as if God graciously takes our heads out in the more rude sense of the word. Now, a few chapters later in Luke, in chapter 19, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. The lost. And many times in the Gospels, the Greek word that's translated either as save or heal, which is sozo, it's the same Greek word. So in other words, this verse could be translated, For the Son of Man came to seek out and to heal the lost. So think about what it would mean if every time the New Testament or that street evangelist that has his cornered, that every time they said the word saved, we substituted the word healed. The Greek word sozo can be translated to save, to deliver, to protect, but also to heal, to preserve, to be or to make whole again. I've told you before about Julian of Norwich. She was one of the few women in the medieval church that was considered a theologian. She was also, by the way, the first woman to ever write a book in the English language. And she lived in England in the late 1300s and the early 1400s. And Julian preferred to call the burden of human condition not, not original sin, but original wounds. We are wounded, and God heals us and makes us whole and raises us up time and time again. And John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, talked of salvation in the terms of grace. We're surrounded by the love and grace of God from the, from the moment, the split second, in which we are conceived, long before we're aware of that love, much less have any ability to return that love. It's not unlike how a pregnant mother might love her unborn infant while it's still in her womb, the mother already loves the child simply because the child exists and long before that child has any capacity to love her in return. And this is why the United Methodist Church practices infant baptism. We certainly honor our Christian brothers and sisters who practice believers' baptism, but in the United Methodist Church, we want to emphasize that God loves us and claims us long before we're capable of returning that love to God. God loves us simply because we exist and we are God's children. And Wesley called this grace that surrounds us from that moment of conception prevenient grace. At some point in our lives, however, we realize that we're not where we want to be. There's something in our lives that's just not working. And we may begin to regret the choices that we've made. We then come to realize that even though we have made bad decisions, God still loves us, forgives us, wants to be in relationship with us. We then make that free will decision 
to accept the love and forgiveness that God is right there already offering to us. And we say yes to God. And Wesley called this justifying grace. And as soon as we accept God's offer, then God comes into our hearts and begins to heal us from the inside out. God heals the wounds that were inflicted upon us by others. Saves us from the consequences of all those wounds that we've inflicted on other people. And heals the wounds then that we've inflicted upon ourselves. God makes us whole again. And we respond in gratitude and we begin to surrender ourselves to the will of God. And we become joyful disciples. As Christians, we become transformed by following Christ and letting the Holy Spirit guide us on our way. Every day we grow in love for God and for our neighbor. Now we still screw up, but as we grow, we're better able to accept God's forgiveness and to respond in gratitude and renewed discipleship. And we slowly become more and more like Jesus. And Wesley called this sanctifying grace. Now combining these three stages of grace that Wesley taught, provenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace, then with the concept of Julian of Norwich that we are burdened with original wounds and that salvation consists in the healing of those wounds, then we can compare salvation then kind of to this, to this following story. We're born with a weak and defective heart. One day we experience a sudden heart attack. We fall into the ground with a wounded heart. The paramedics come, revive us, transport us to the emergency room. Eventually, we're transferred to the intensive care unit. We may find we need a, uh, further surgery, but eventually we are released, enter into rehab, and hopefully from then on, a lifetime of good, healthy choices and practices. So even though we are born with wounded hearts, we're never out of God's sight, and that's provenient grace. We think we can go forward on our own power, but eventually we will fall. God is immediately at our side, however, but then we have a choice of whether or not to receive God's care. But if we say yes, then God stabilizes us and transports us to the emergency room and saves our lives, and that is justifying grace. We then start that healing process, and God continues to hold us close in God's intensive care as we begin to heal. And we may need surgery to either have something taken away from us or something added to our lives so that we can live fully again. But God is just staying right there, though, right there beside us in the recovery room. And slowly we get stronger. We enter into rehab and God begins to transform our lives, body, soul, mind, and strength, and spirit, we take on healthy practices, healthy spiritual practices, so that we can get stronger and stronger. Now, of course, we're still going to stumble. We're still going to relapse. But with God's help, we get right back on our feet, and we continue to journey toward God with the Holy Spirit at our side. And that is sanctifying grace. Mm -hmm. Wesley's understanding of grace makes salvation, he kind of makes it sound like it's this neat three-step process but salvation is really more about entering into a transforming relationship with 
God, our Creator, through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And while it may not be a clear-cut three-step process, it is very much a journey. God the Father is both our source and our destination. And Jesus shows us the path, leads us on our way, is our ultimate example. And then the Holy Spirit stays right beside us, holding our hands and steadying our gait. And sometimes we follow right behind Jesus. We follow every move he makes. And other times we dawdle or we wander off the road. Sometimes we get stuck out in the wilderness and we strike out even on our own. All the while, however, the Spirit just keeps whispering in our ears, repent, come back, get on the right path again. And when we do finally realize that we need to get back on that right road, we turn around and we find that Jesus has been waiting for us and is just ready to lead us again. We call this realization repentance. Repentance literally means that we stop going in one direction and we turn and we walk and we go in a different direction. The Wesley stages of grace are at work in everyone's life. No two journeys with God are quite the same. The shape and the path of each person's journey with God will be, well, it'll be as different as we all are as individuals. Consider this illustration. I, do, I had some wonderful childhood pastors, and I'm glad to say that I still remember some of the illustrations I heard as a child and use them again in my sermons. And so this is one of the illustrations that I heard back in elementary school, and I've never forgotten it. Two men are sitting around, and they're talking about how they came to know their wives. And one man tells this story about how he saw his future wife from across the room at a party and knew immediately that she was the one. It was love at first sight. There was electricity from the very beginning. They had this whirlwind romance. They married six months later, and today, 40 years later, they're still in love. The other man said that he and his wife grew up next door to each other. They played together as children, and there was never a time in their lives when they did not know each other. As they got older, they dated other people, even as they continued to live door-to-door, -door, side by side. But very slowly, however, almost imperceptibly at first, they began to realize that their lifelong friendship was turning into love. And they hesitatingly began to date each other, which slowly confirmed to them that they were meant to be together. So after knowing each other all their lives, they finally wed. And 40 years later, they're still in love. So the question is, which man loved his wife more? Both men are still married. They're still in love with their wives. But otherwise, their stories could not be more different. And it's going to be the same in our relationship with God. Evangelist Billy Graham could tell you the exact time and place when he said yes to God. And on the other hand, his wife Ruth said there was never a time that she could remember that she wasn't a Christian. So which one of them loved God more? Right now, you may have been uh, reading about um, a revival experience that's happening at Asbury University. Also, Asbury Seminary is there as well. And there has been uh, gatherings of students in their chapel every day now for, I think, over a week now. And they're speaking as if that this is some sort of a spontaneous revival and many lives are being changed. 
And that kind of emotional revivalist experience is not something that a lot of lifelong United Methodists have had. But I want to believe that this is sincere and their lives are being changed, even if it's not a story that some of us may relate to. It's because all our journeys are going to look so different. And some people need that, here I am, now I am a Christian, before I was not, now I am. And some of us just grow, just loving God just a little bit more each year. And both of those journeys, by the way, are beautiful and valid. And they are of the Holy Spirit. So some of us have these dramatic conversion stories. And some of us have these quieter stories growing up in the church and always having Christ in our lives. In both cases, however, there is a point when we said yes to God. Whether we can pinpoint that moment or not, we entered into a relationship with God not because we were told to by our parents or our pastors or because we were brought up to follow Jesus. We made the choice for ourselves that we would become disciples of Jesus Christ. And like the lost son, we made the decision to go home. That father is still watching on the horizon for any sign of one of God's children that has turned in repentance and is ready to come home. And each one of us is invited to give our hearts back to the one who created it. So come back home and come in the door. The wine is flowing, there's enough bread to go around, and the fatted calf has been prepared. And the Father's there, ready to heal your wounds, and ready to remove that shackle around your neck. All you have to do is start down that road. All you have to do is to walk through that door. All you have to do is say yes. Amen. Remember last time we had Karen come up and give us a moment in black church history? She's here back to give us another moment in black church history. Good morning. Good morning. So you remember Jarena Lee from last yeah. week? She believed in the grace that John Wesley talked about, wrote about, wrote about at length in his sermons. Now, his sermons are kind of boring to read because they were written for the clergy that he sent out to study for their own sermons. And they are our United Methodist doctrine to this day. Um, what The way he actually preached was much, you know, livelier because he was a revival preacher. And Jarena Lee wrote about just a uh, prevenient, justifying, and sanctifying grace in her autobiography, her narrative, or she called it a journal, the journal of Jarena Lee. Um, and there are uh, so many people who were influenced by the Wesleyan movement and the United Methodist Church, um, black and white in the 19th century, uh, probably some Hispanics and, and, and Chinese, too. Uh, the journals and narratives and autobiographies that we have are primarily uh, by black and white women and men. And, and so, um, you know, that, that's what we have available to us. Now, another person who was influenced by the Methodist Church and Wesleyan teaching 
is someone you may have heard about. How many of you know who Sojourner Truth is? All right, so some of you know who Sojourner Truth is. Well, she was a famous itinerant preacher, a famous abolitionist, and a famous women, women's rights activist. And she was born around 1879 in Dutch country, New York. And she was born a slave there. And then by 1826, slavery was abolished there. And so, you know, she took her young daughter as a free woman um, to live uh, uh, free. And she also had other children, and her plan was to live with them free. But they tried to keep one of her children in slavery. And she was the first former slave to win a lawsuit against a white man <laughs> because it was now against the law in New York to hold slaves. Her most famous speech is often called, Ain't I a Woman? Now that version of her speech was um, written and, and published by, I think it's Francis Jocelyn Gage in 1863. Sojourner Truth originally gave this speech, Aren't I a Woman, in 1851 in Seneca, New York, at a women's rights convention. And the way the journalist for the newspaper who attended the, the, the convention and transcribed what she said into his notes, what she said there was, aren't I a woman? Gage was a white feminist and abolitionist who found it uh, important to sell the autobiography of Sojourner Truth uh, during a time when they were trying to free slaves from the Deep South. And so she found it expedient to use what she thought of as, you know, black Deep South language. <laughs> but Sojourner Truth probably spoke Dutch in English, but she wouldn't have had a Southern Deep South colloquial idiomatic way of speaking. She was inspired to become an itinerant minister when she was in an AME church in, I think it was Pennsylvania. Everybody, it seems like everybody's up north in Pennsylvania, <laughs> you know. Well, because, you know, that's where Richard Allen's church was, and, and, um, and, 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 and then there was another church in, um, in New York, you know, um, and so everybody, you know, went to these churches. Um, and she felt this calm. And that is how, and that is the context in which she experienced this tremendous call to preach the only sermon she ever preached, When I Found Jesus. 
when I found Jesus everywhere she went and to preach and speak for freedom for all people, especially black people who are still in slavery and women. And there's so many more. Rebecca Miles and I used to teach a course called 19th Century Holiness Women. Uh, we still may teach it again sometime. Amanda Berry Smith spread the gospel all around the world as a preaching evangelist in England, Africa, India, the south of the United States and in the north during slavery, which was very dangerous. And the Holy Spirit was so powerful in her that one man who heckled her and wanted her re-enslaved found himself converted because all of these women believed in the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit and the convicting power of God's grace and, and everywhere they went people were convicted and changed their hearts were changed to love all God's children thank you so much you can always watch a recording of our services on our website tumcd.org on our Facebook page or an audio on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And as we enter into Lent, I'll say this, I haven't said this in a while, but remember to thank God for three things, at least three things every day. And I receive this benediction. As you continue to travel the road with God, may you hear the voice of the Father calling you home. May you follow the example of Jesus Christ going before you. And may you feel the warmth of the Holy Spirit guiding you forward. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue our sermon series, Questions, the Beginnings of Faith. Join us then for the message, Can I Start Again? You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. <laughs>